Let me ask the rest of you to open your Bibles to Psalm 137. If you are just joining us, we are doing a mini-series in the Psalms this summer, and we've been looking at the different varieties of the Psalms. Our, our choices have not been random. Uh, we've been trying to do a, a sampling of the kinds of Psalms that you'll find if you read all 150 of them. So if you're new to the Bible or new to church, um, you should know that not every psalm is a happy psalm, and we're going to look at that a little bit more in depth. Uh, But this psalm in particular uh, gets our attention. Um, It's like when you open up an oven that's 450 degrees and that heat hits you, um, uh, you know, you're sort of not expecting it. Uh, So just buckle up. Uh, This one's going to be interesting. Let's stand in honor of God's Word. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. I think we need to pray. Father, we, um, we don't like these words. They're hard to hear. Uh, they're upsetting. And they're confusing. And they're angry. Lord, we pray that you would give us your spirit, um, clear our minds, clear our hearts, so we can see you in these words, so that we can know the gospel better because of these words, so that we can give thanks for these your words to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Um, So I can't. I can't just read those words like, um, like I'm reading a recipe in a cookbook, um, so forgive me if that felt a little dramatic, but we have to feel that. Uh, for those of you who know my story, uh, you know that I did not grow up in a church, um, and I didn't know the Bible uh, from that cookbook. Uh, so so my, um, part of my story is God uh, awakening me to the eternity he put in my heart when I was in high school. And uh, one of the things I learned uh, in high school around 10th grade was that I was not a very good center fielder, uh, which is why I'm not <laughs> contributing to the, uh, the winning streak on the tornadoes. Uh, I hung up my baseball mitt and um, started to do other things like student government and uh, drama, thespians and all that fun stuff. And um, we, we did a production of uh, Neil Simon's Biloxi Blues my senior year in high school. 
and we were good as it as it turned out. I was Sergeant Toomey. He was the uh, very malcontent sergeant making basic training misery for um, for this group of men. Uh, and we went to the State Thespian Conference uh, at Longwood. We did well there. We were invited to. Uh, to take our production to Muncie, Indiana, uh, to Ball State University for the international conference that summer of 1988. So uh, we were there with a bunch of other high schools. I remember there was a high school from Hawaii uh, that had brought uh, some play that they, they were doing. I don't remember any of the other plays besides ours. And one other high school who did a production of Godspell. And I'd never heard of Godspell before. How many of you have seen Godspell? Um, so you know, it's this sort of hippie musical version of the Gospels. And it's really, I think, well done. Not like Andrew Lloyd Webber's version of Jesus Christ Superstar, which ends poorly, uh, not faithful to the Gospels. Godspell, uh, in contrast, really is, is a lot of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John just kind of mashed together and put the music and Jesus running around in a Superman t-shirt. Um, one of the songs uh, is called On the Willows. And I didn't know at the time, uh, but it introduced me to Psalm 137. Beautiful song, On the Willows. And it's basically the first four verses of the psalm. And it's a lament, right? Um, Israel is in exile under Babylon. And uh, how can we sing the Lord's song while in a foreign land? Um, well, imagine <laughs> my surprise uh, a couple of years later as a uh, now a Christian, now uh, a college student at JMU, when I read the rest of the psalm. And just coming across verse 9. And, you know, like you need, it's like you need oven mitts, you know. Uh, it's just, it, it's so hot with anger and violence, really. And how do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of this um, psalm? We think it's supposed to be, you know, happy. It's a psalm, right? It's in the Bible. It's supposed to be good. Uh, and it ends so abruptly and so, um, so violently. Uh, let's talk about the songs of Zion. That, those are mentioned here uh, in verse 3. And then um, what this particular psalm ends up being is a psalm not of Zion. This is a song for tormentors, and this is a song uh, for exiles, and for us who are considered aliens and strangers, exiles uh, in this world as we wait for the world to come. Um, so most of you, if you uh, are, are, uh, read most of the Psalms, you expect to open to the Psalms and read Praise the Lord or something like that, and we've covered those Psalms of praise, the songs of Zion. Um, we, we've done Psalm 134 and 135 and now uh, here, and 136, I mean, and now here we are in 137. Um, most of the Psalms we like from, because of like Psalm 135 that we did two weeks ago, blessed be the Lord from Zion who dwells in Jerusalem, praise the Lord, right? Um, these are happy Psalms. They sound good on Sunday mornings. They sound good on the Christian radio. The problem is, as Karen said, uh, that isn't sufficient to describe our lives and the Christian experience. The Christian experience is not one of perpetual joy and happiness. I think sometimes we pray that it would be and we get disappointed in God when it's not, but that was never the deal. This side of heaven 
When you and I signed on to follow Jesus, we, in part, signed on to follow a man of sorrows. And that means we're going to lament with him from time to time. And this actually is, is uh, helpful for us to see in Psalm 137, verse 1, you've got weeping. And, uh, and that's mentioned. You've got in verse 4, confusion. You know, how, how should we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? You've got joy in verse 6, setting Jerusalem above my highest joy. And then in, in verse uh, 8 and 9, you've got just outright rage and anger. And this is why the Psalms are so good for us. It's God giving us a green light to go to him with what's on our hearts. We don't have to hide, we don't have to pretend that we're not sad or that we're not depressed or that we're not angry or we're not like, thinking violent thoughts about you know, so-and-so who did something bad to us. God already knows. Why not just be honest with him? And he's given us the Psalms to say, hey, come to me. You know, it's not going to do you any good to pretend like that's not the case. The more we suppress it, the more we end up bleeding out on other people and you know, we think it's not affecting others, but it is. Go to Jesus. Go to God. He's big enough. He can handle it. He made our hearts. He knows what's going on in our hearts. And this is why it's really helpful for us to have that green light in the Psalms. Um, and then we saw last week, uh, over and over and over again, 26 times, the refrain that God's steadfast love endures forever and how he is our creator and he's our deliverer from Egypt. You know, God brought his people out of bondage in Egypt and then he's their defender and he takes them into the land of Canaan and there's these other psalms too that are properly um, categorized as psalms of Zion psalm 48 is one of those for instance where the psalmist says walk about Zion go around her number her towers consider well her ramparts go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever, right? Um, those are the, the psalms we like, happy psalms and God's faithfulness and his goodness. Uh, let me see the, the slide, if I may. Where did Dan go? I don't know. Well, hey, there we are. Um, this is a, a little history of Israel so that you and I uh, can better understand the context for Psalm 137. Um, so back in 3,000 years ago, King David was conquering all of the other countries and nations and tribes that were um, trespassing in Canaan. And he made Israel a superpower, basically. A uh, very powerful, huge army. And it was the zenith of, of Israel. Uh, his son Solomon takes the throne. And because David was a man of war, God asked Solomon to build his temple, and, and then in 950, you get the pinnacle of Israel's worship with the dedication of the temple. Solomon dies, and 20 years later, you know, here's the zenith, and every organization, every person, every country, every community, you know, um, they begin their decline immediately after the zenith. Do you ever think about that? Their decline begins immediately after the zenith of Solomon's temple when you have the divided kingdom uh, between Solomon's heirs and you've got the northern kingdom in orange, uh, Israel, and then the southern kingdom, Judah, in pink. Um, so it didn't take long um, before all of the evil kings and the bad influences uh, started to, to erode that foundation that had been established. And essentially... 
um, in 721, just 200 years after the division, the northern kingdom of Israel falls to Assyria. And those people are deported, they're sent out as exiles, and then all that's left is just Judah and its capital, Jerusalem. And really only about 150 years after that, Babylon invades. Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem. It's a, hundred, or, um, a year and a half long siege to the capital city. Finally, Jerusalem falls in 586. The inhabitants are deported, they're exiles, and so on. And so here's my question. If you are in exile, either in the 8th century BC under Assyria or the 6th century BC under Babylon, and you open your Bible to Psalm 48, walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider her ramparts, go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Really? Because I'm in exile. And Jerusalem has been demolished. And the steadfast love of the Lord sure does not seem like it endures forever. So what happens when our deliverer doesn't seem to show up? And what happens when your defender seems to have taken a vacation? What happens when the steadfast love that the Lord promised you seems to be on hiatus? You don't need a psalm of Zion at that point. You need a psalm of exile. You need a song for your tormentors, perhaps. Uh, This is where Psalm 137 is so useful. Not every psalm is a happy psalm, a song of Zion. Not every psalm is written by David, you know, uh, sitting under a cedar tree uh, by the uh, Jordan River, strumming his harp while his lambs are under his watchful care. Some psalms were written hundreds of years later by descendants of David um, sitting under a willow tree by the Euphrates River. They've hung up their harps and they're under the watchful glare of their tormentors. And so you come across hot emotions and expressions and anger that deserve you know, this kind of label. It's pretty explicit. It's pretty in your face. It's like you know, grabbing that hot pan on the stovetop and you, oh, I don't want to touch that. Um, this isn't the only psalm that's like that. There are other, uh, they're called imprecatory psalms. Um, they are prayers. Uh, for God to do harm uh, to those who have harmed us. And you'll run into this in Psalms 58, uh, 69, 109, 139. Do you remember Psalm 139? This is a great psalm. You know, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You know every word before it is on my tongue. You've knit me together in my mother's womb. Fearfully and wonderfully you've made me. All these beautiful sentiments. You ever finish that psalm? You get to verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Do I not hate them with complete hatred? I count them my enemies. And you go, 
Okay. Next psalm. All right. Before you and I, um, you know, pull our skirts in and just, you know, react in horrified exasperation, uh, C.S. Lewis warns us, it is monstrously simple-minded to read the cursings, the imprecatory uh, psalms with no feeling except one of horror at the uncharity of the poets. Why? Why is that simple-minded? Why is that monstrously simple-minded? Well, let me give you a few things to consider, and then we're going to keep going. All right, you and I um, should know we're, we're, we're middle class, right? We're pretty secure. Your generation, my generation, we have not known war, warfare firsthand. That's not the case throughout this world. Um, most people have grown up and have experienced war firsthand. Uh, and that's been true for all the ages. And what's going on in this psalm is a description of warfare. This is normal stuff for ancient warfare and sometimes even modern warfare because it is a fact that in order to terrorize your enemy and to cow them into submission, to cow them into just even you know, surrender, uh, they would slaughter the children. And in order to wipe out any hope of retaliation, they would also slaughter the children because that took care of the next generation of soldiers. It's a fact. It's not pretty, but it's real and it's honest and it convinces us, by the way, this is not propaganda. This is written in a historical real context and it's not gonna gloss over hard things. So you can, have, you can trust your Bible for that reason. But what about turning the other cheek? And, and how come we've got all this stuff in here about um, you know, loving our enemies when you get to verses like this and you go, well, what am I supposed to do? Well, just remember, this is, uh, Psalm 137 is not telling us you should do this too. Not everything you read in the Bible is prescriptive, telling you to go and do likewise. You know, the Bible, it is prescriptive to turn the other cheek. It is prescriptive to forgive your enemies. But this is describing the emotional, violent reaction of people who have suffered tremendous violence. So just keep that in mind. It's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. And let me ask you this, too. What is worse, having this visceral, violent, emotional reaction to violence, um, you know, deliberate, uh, deliberately inflicted against you, is it worse to feel those raw, intense feelings and even wish those raw, violent things against your enemies or to just feel nothing? Mike mentioned it in his prayer. You go through our Twitter feed, your Facebook feed, you flip the channels, and horror after horror, indignity after indignity, violence after violence, and our next thought is, where's that cat video, you know? And we're indifferent. And we don't respond. We've become numb. And we've forgotten that the world is a violent place, and we are in our bubble, and we feel safe, and, and we, don't, we, we stop caring. Um, and lastly, are you as horrified um, about... Psalm 137, verse 9, uh, do you feel the same way about the fact that last year one million babies were killed through abortion intentionally and deliberately? It wasn't an accident. Psalm 137 is 
giving us a principle that we need to remember called an eye for an eye. Uh, in verse 8, you get a really helpful thing that sets you up for verse 9, the heat of opening that oven. Um, in O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Um, it's important to remember, as, as awful as it is to imagine verse 9 being a reality, they weren't inventing that as some, you know, hey, we're going to step it up and, and turn up the, the heat on our enemies. This had been done to them. So when Babylon comes into Judah, when it comes into Jerusalem, you can read about the siege of Jerusalem in Ezekiel, and it's awful. It's graphic, it's explicit, it's, it, it, it makes the ISIS bombing of Aleppo and all of the destruction, all of the chemical warfare, all of the starvation, all of the homelessness, all of the orphans, all of that, it, it, it's, that gives you a window into the year and a half long siege on Jerusalem. And so what was going on is a desire for some kind of recompense, some kind of justice uh, that God would repay Babylon and Edom for what they have done to us. Imagine somebody hurting your child. I mean, true confessions, I have a violent imagination and it doesn't take much for me to imagine somebody doing something to somebody I love, my wife, my kids, you know, anybody else, and I can, I can think of horrible things to do to that perpetrator. Imagine somebody doing something to your child, ripping that child from you. Imagine you are an African person. You've been, uh, your tribe was uh, conquered by another tribe, and they sell you into slavery, and you end up in a foreign country. You're on an auction block, and somebody forcibly takes your child away from you. Imagine you are uh, a Polish Jew, and you end up at the train station under the SS, and you go to that line, and they take your child this way, and you go that way, and you never see your child again. Can you just enter the context a little bit and feel some of that anger and imagine some of that reality in their lives? We who are so safe, uh, I don't think it takes much to imagine. In fact, I think it takes a lot less. Let's be honest. It doesn't take much for us to think somebody is not fit to live and when we want their blood, all they have to do is cut us off in traffic. So the good news is that God remembers. Verse 7 is the call, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites. You know, that, um, in that map, uh, Edom was the descendants of Esau. Uh, Jacob and Esau were the twins that were born. And Edom, instead of defending their brothers, their relatives in Judah, they allied themselves with Babylon. And so God, um, the Israel is calling God to remember their treason and for betraying uh, them. And remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, and how they called out, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. Psalm 137 is incredibly valuable. It's necessary because it validates our longing for justice. It validates those who have suffered violence wanting equity. This isn't hypothetical for some of you. It isn't hypothetical for some of you who have suffered violent words, 
violent sex, violent abuse, violent treatment of any kind. But you read these and you go, okay, Psalm 137 validates that cry for justice, but there's something else that troubles us. What about turning the other cheek? How does Psalm 137 fit into the whole scheme of Scripture? What about this call to love and forgive our enemies? How do I forgive someone who has done such evil to me? How do I forgive somebody who betrays me intentionally and breaks their promises uh, to me? How do I forgive somebody who posts something intentionally, intentionally to embarrass me and they know what they're doing and they're gloating about it? How do I forgive somebody who steals my idea, who steals my work and then, you know, pretends like it's theirs and they get all the credit for it? Over and over and over again, we see this kind of behavior. How do you move on? How do you get out of the cycle of an eye for an eye? How do you get out of that rut of wanting to retaliate? And what hope do we ever have of learning to forgive the unspeakable? One of the hardest things for people who have been tormented and have been victimized, one of the hardest things for them is that there are so few people who can understand what they've been through. And violence is so awful because it continues to do violence on the person long after the violence has been done. Long after the rape, long after the beatings, long after the blood, uh, the violence continues because it alienates and isolates the victim. Because they feel like nobody understands. Nobody can enter in. Um, There's good news for you. God enters in. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is God tabernacling among us. It's Jesus. Who is this? He's the king of heaven and he's dying on a cross. He's suffering violence for your sake and for my sake to show us we're not alone. You are not alone. You do not worship a God in some cross-legged trance with some, you know, empty expression on his face. You, you worship and are loved by the God who stretched out his hands and had nails put through them, through his feet and a spear in his side because he loves you. And you are not alone. And he's with you. Even if nobody ever can understand what you physically went through, no other human being, Jesus does. And far worse. Jesus laid down his life and he suffered violence, not just for you, but, and this is going to be a very high hurdle for some of you, but also for your tormentor. The thing about the gospel that's so difficult, the thing that makes the gospel far more difficult to tolerate and to swallow and to endure than even Psalm 137 verse 9 is that Jesus died for your enemies too. And when he laid down his life, he was... He was making a way for every single sin to be forgiven. All who repent and turn to him, no matter what they've done, can be forgiven. The only thing that keeps somebody out of heaven is unrepentance. And for those who have suffered horribly, that sounds crazy to them. What do you mean they can be forgiven? Psalm 137 troubles us because it 
It asks for vengeance, not against the perpetrator, but against the child of the perpetrator, right? Do you see that? Verse 9 does not read, blessed shall he be who dashes you against the rock. It reads, blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Psalm 137 is more than an eye for an eye. It's, It's about more than equity. It's actually about sacrifice. It teaches us that Over and over again, culture after culture, age after age, there's one thing that is affirmed over and over and over again. If there is to be true atonement, if there is to be true satisfaction, equity isn't enough. There has to be a sacrifice. You have to give something really pure and precious in order to atone for the sin, in order to make amends. Somebody's got to know that you're more than just, yeah, all right, I stole from you, here's a check, whatever. They've got to bleed for you. It's got to cost them something. And if the gospel teaches us anything, it's this, that God knows what it's like to give a son, to give a child over to violence. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, was given. He had no sin. He was perfect. He was pure. And he died for our sins. He was the pure sacrifice. He is the one that reconciles us with the God that we've offended. And here's the hard part about the gospel is that Jesus died for our enemies and our tormentors as well as for us. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have more in common with our tormentors than we do with God. Miroslav Volf uh, is a theologian. He lived through genocide and, uh, in Bosnia. Uh, and he writes this, that forgiveness founders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrous into the sphere of the shared humanity and without transposing herself from the sphere of the proud innocent into the sphere of the common sinfulness. That's what the gospel does. It shows us that I have more in common with my tormentors than I do with my Savior. Because why? Well, because if I'm honest, I I have to confess the violent words, violent thoughts, violent attitudes, a pacifism in the face of violence, all of that. We're all victims, and we're all perpetrators. You, see, you think Psalm 137, verse 9 is hard, hard medicine. The gospel is so much harder. To get to the point where you can be honest with yourself and with your Lord and with your neighbor and tell them, I've sinned, I'm sorry. That takes the work of the Holy Spirit. It takes a miracle in your heart and in my heart. That's why God gives us songs for tormentors uh, that he, of course, wants to make sure that we know he can handle our anger. He can handle our call for equity and he is a God who remembers and he will bring justice to bear. But it is also to remind us of the one who suffered violently on our behalf so that we can have life in his name, so that we can have a song for exiles, for us who are aliens, aliens and strangers who... Maybe we've suffered firsthand, maybe not. Maybe we just know that this world is broken and we're longing for a better world. We know that we don't belong to this one. We belong to the next one. We're looking forward to when he returns. And that is why we sing how long. And that is why we sing 
uh, as Revelation teaches us to sing about the justice that God's going to bring. Great and marvelous are your ways. Just and true are your judgments. Who will not fear you and bring glory to your name? Do you know that when Jesus comes back, the clock is going to start ticking on eternity? And we will never reach the point in eternity when we go, God, I'm, I don't think you got it right. We will be perfectly satisfied with his judgment. Any wrong that you've experienced or that I've experienced, any wrong that any victim has experienced is going to be put to rights. Either because Jesus has taken on that sin on himself or because that individual has been held accountable themselves. If you're here and you have not gone to Jesus with your own sinful need, with your own violent thoughts and words and your contribution to the world's brokenness, you need to flee to him. You need his forgiveness so that you can make the song of an exile your own because Babylon's judgment is coming. Revelation tells us fallen, fallen is Babylon. Her sins have been piled, heaped high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities And he will pay her back as she herself has paid back others. That is coming for all who are are Babylon in general. And for the rest of us who have trusted in Jesus and have found shelter in him, who know that, yes, we're victims, but we're also perpetrators, we can sing this song of Zion that he loves us. Revelation 1, he loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Miroslav Volv continues, and I conclude. He says, when one knows, as the cross demonstrates, that the torturer will not ex- eternally triumph over the victim, one is free to rediscover that person's humanity and imitate God's love for him. And when one knows, as the cross demonstrates, that God's love is greater than all sin, one is free to see oneself in the light of God's justice. And so rediscover one's own sinfulness. Let me pray for us. Father, we need your help to admit our own need, to see ourselves in league with perpetrators and tormentors and not just as victims. But we also thank you that your word reassures those who have suffered that there is justice, there is equity, that you will bring satisfaction. Lord, would you bring it soon? Would you bring peace on earth? Would you let your kingdom come and your will be done? Lord, would you use us toward that end? Make us peacemakers. Help us to be men and women and children who forgive as we have been forgiven. And let us be the agents that you use to break cycles of violence and, and, um, and payback. Lord, would you get great glory in your people? Would you bind up wounds? Would you minister the, to broken hearts? And would you be our savior, our comforter, our deliverer in our life? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.